We are going to be in Mark 11 this morning. If you have a Bible, you can open up there. It's printed out in your uh, liturgical guide as well. We're going to be in verses 20 through 25 as we come almost to the end of our series on prayer. We've been in it for a few months, uh, simply calling it People of Prayer, trying to take different snapshots from Scripture about what Scripture has to say to us as those who earnestly want to learn to follow Jesus in the area of prayer. So we've humbled ourselves to acknowledge that like, as a people, prayer does not come easy. It's, it's hard to live a life of prayer. That difficulty hits us, and rather than try and manage our life or take control of a situation that we feel a little threatened by, that we would rely on the Lord first in prayer. That when we're celebrating, we would first rejoice and thank God that He's the one who is the source of every good gift that we have in prayer, rather than just feeling good about some circumstance. So, we're going to read this passage, um, Teaching of Jesus, because we believe something pretty remarkable has happened in Jesus Christ, that the kingdom of heaven is here and now available to us, that we can actually live with Jesus as a reality in our life, but that it's contrary to the way that the world forms us, and it's contrary even to some of like our natural instincts and impulses. So we want to hear Jesus' words this morning, that we would learn to follow him in our reality. So, Uh, Mark 11, I want to give you just a little bit of a picture because we're like jumping in into a narrative, into a story, so that we can make sense of it. So in Mark 11, Jesus has set his face toward Jerusalem. He knows that God has called him to go there. The Spirit is leading him to Jerusalem, uh, to to the temple, to the very place where the presence of God is supposed to be most present and powerful in all the cosmos. And he's going there because he knows that As he comes to the temple, uh, the the chief religious leaders are going to oppose him, and they're actually going to hand him over to the Roman officials to crucify him, that he could die for the sin of the world. Now, in verse 11, he goes into the temple when he first arrives in Jerusalem, and it it says it almost like he went there, like he was scouting it out, and then it, it turns to evening, and so as he's leaving with his disciples, he sees a fig tree from far off. And the fig tree has all of these lush green leaves. And he goes there, and Mark says that he was looking for figs. But there weren't any, because it wasn't the season for fig fruit to grow. And so he curses this tree. He says, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. Okay, Jesus, a little like hangry or something. And then so he, he, we're going to jump in here now and... Um, Just know that that's what has happened. Oh yeah, right after that he goes into the temple and he sees in the temple uh, the money changers and the marketplace in God's house and he fashions a whip of cords, goes in and drives out all the money changers and clears out this huge temple area. Okay. Now this is where we dive in. So would you stand with me as we read God's word? And why don't we go ahead and read this out loud together. It's printed out in the CSB translation in your handouts. Mark 11, verses 20 through 25. Let's begin. Early in the morning, as they were passing by, they saw the fig tree withered up from the roots up. Then Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. 
Jesus replied to them, Have faith in God. Truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, Be lifted up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, everything you pray and ask for, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him, so that your Father in heaven will also forgive you your wrongdoing. Pray with me. Spirit of God, we invite you here. We ask you to be uh, uniquely present among us right now as we open up your word, as we seek to hear the voice of our Heavenly Father, as we seek to um, encounter the glory of Jesus Christ. We need you. We need your help. We need you to help reveal what uh, sins, burdens, pain, anxiety, and fear we bring into your presence among your people this morning. And we bless you that you know our hearts better than even we do. And so would you manifest the mercy the kindness, the love of Jesus, that we would be totally surrendered to you afresh this morning. Help us to have ears to hear your words and eyes to see the living Jesus among us. And Holy Spirit, please fill us for a life of authentic following of him and real obedience to Him. In His name we pray. Amen. All right, you can take your seats. So, Mark 11, 20-25, as I was praying at the beginning of trying to plot out for our series on prayer, what areas of prayer seem to be really urgent for not just universally in Scripture, but urgent also for us, and for us in our particular moment. And I think what, we, what, what I want for us to see this morning is that real vitality in prayer, if we could even phrase it, real power in prayer, comes through authentic faith through authentic faith and real forgiveness is a natural, necessary element of authentic faith. Now, surely all of us would nod our heads and say, yeah, we need a lot more authenticity in the church in our day. We see all over the place the areas where, whether it's church leaders or Christian friends other people that have had an influence in our life, authors that we've read, have done all sorts of things that belie their faith in Jesus, right? Like, we see all over the place the need for integrity to be recultivated within the household of faith, especially in the West, okay? Especially as us young people are growing up to become torchbearers in the church, many of us look to those who have gone before us 
And we might be able to be generous in our assessment of them and yet clear-eyed at some of the hypocrisy that we see. And if you're like me, I've shared this before. I met Jesus and grew up in a church in my faith, that would be my college years, in a church that went from 15,000 to doors closed and shuttered within 12 months because of spiritual abuse um, and all sorts of malignance that grows in a really religious, spiritual environment that has abandoned Jesus altogether. So, the simple point today, the simplest way that I can articulate what I would want to call us into, invite us into, is that life in prayer, power in prayer, flows from Jesus through us as we live in authentic faith. And what I mean by authentic is not only being really honest about our struggles, sure, that's a part of it, but the kind of integrity that says, I want to follow Jesus, and then actually wrestles into our life meaningful discomfort and inconvenience of following Him and taking His word seriously. Does that make sense? That integrity would be not just we wear the name Christian on the outside, but that we embody Jesus on the inside. Okay? So, in our passage, Jesus and the disciples arrive back at the fig tree and see that it is withered. Jesus' words of cursing became a reality in the moment. And they're like, Jesus, you just said it. And then it happened. It's as though they're, they're just baffled that his words, these invisible waves coming out from his mouth, have produced a visible reality in front of them. I mean, they're just as shocked without all the 2,000 years of, of all the extra information and knowledge that we supposedly have as the human race. They're just as shocked as we would be if we were walking alongside of him. There are a couple of things that confront us in this passage, and one of them we're not going to have time to really unpack and dive into very much, but I want to put before you as something to just shake up some of our preconceived notions about the world. That is, that our words have power. Not just Jesus and, yeah, he's the Son of God, but that words have power that we can't quite fathom. Okay? We know this relationally, right? We know that we, we wound people, we bless people with our words. That our words have material effect on people in our relationships. But here we see with Jesus something way more profound. An, an inanimate object, a, a fruit tree, has actually responded to his words of cursing. That confronts a lot of my assumptions about how the world works. Okay? Now, I used to read a passage like this and just say, well, yeah, that's Jesus is the Son of God. He's the one who like, spoke it into being. Yeah, he could speak it out of being, right? Now, what was problematic about my assumptions are the source. They have to do with the source of where Jesus' power and authority come from. 
And the reason this is important is because it has effect for all of us as followers of Jesus. I'm going to give us a few simple principles for how Jesus did his, his work, his ministry, and then we're going to pivot into what its application is for us. Jesus has incredible power in his words, not primarily because of his divine sonship. Not because he spoke that tree into existence from eternity past. Jesus has incredible power in his words in this story because he dwells authentically in the presence of God. A couple of assumptions that confront us. The first one is from Dallas Willard, one of my favorite authors. He says this, Jesus is the smartest man who ever lived. Jesus is the smartest man who ever lived. He knows how the world actually works. He knows how the world actually works. I know our psychology professors and gurus and therapists and data scientists on social media have helpful insights. But Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of the living God, has infinitely more wisdom about what is real in us and around us. So, when some new discovery happens that very well might be discredited in five, ten years, or at least augmented by a new study, the words of Jesus still prove true 2,000 years later. Secondly, not only is Jesus the smartest man who ever lived, Jesus did all his ministry by the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, not by his divine sonship. Okay, this is what Philippians 2 tells us when it says he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or held onto, but humbled himself and made himself a servant. Jesus did what he did in the Gospels, not because he is God. He is. He's the Christ. But by the filling and empowerment of God's Spirit. The miracles that he did were in the power of the Spirit. The words that he spoke were in the power of the Spirit. Okay? Now here's what that confronts in us. Excusing ourselves from doing the things that Jesus did because we are little old us and Jesus is big old him. <laughs> okay? That's why when Jesus sent out his, his disciples, he said, go out, proclaim the kingdom, heal the sick, and cast out demons. Okay? That is what the kingdom of God does. The, the word for kingdom in the New Testament is an active kind of word. It's not just the status of God's kingdom, like the kingdom of God's here, as though like God's over and above everything else, right? Like that's just a statement. When the kingdom of God is here, is proclaimed, that means the active rule and reign of God. There is a new power source that human beings can live by, that you and me can live by, in our everyday, mundane, sometimes boring lives that taps into the real, authentic reign of King Jesus on earth. And the Spirit, the one who led Jesus and empowered Him, is the same one who leads and empowers us. Now, if that sounds intimidating, it should be. That's okay. It requires us to humble ourselves and to say, I am not... Wise enough, mature enough in my faith, I don't even know what that would begin to look like. Welcome. 
We're glad you're here. That's what discipleship is. It's relearning to live in the kingdom of God in our everyday life rather than in what we've picked up in the earthiness of our relationships in the way of the world. Okay? So, when Jesus speaks these words, it's not simply because He is the divine Son. It's actually Him speaking words of cursing into the world in such a way, in the authority of Jesus, the tree withers. The authority of God, excuse me. Now, what the heck is going on with the tree? Okay, What's going on with the tree? This is where we pivot and something becomes really real for us in this moment. Okay, Because Jesus first went to the temple, he scouts it out, he comes back, he sees this tree that has the image of bearing fruit, like it's lush, and he comes to it and doesn't actually have fruit. He curses it. Then the next day he goes back into the temple, this place that has the image of bearing the presence of God, and yet bears none of the essential fruit of what the presence of God ought to bring among his people. And Jesus curses it. He flips over tables. He drives out those who are opposed to what the real core essence of the kingdom of God is supposed to be. He gives us this cue when he says, you have made my house into a den of robbers when it is supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations. The disciples and Jesus leave and the tree has died. That's what Jesus did. What it means for us is it provides us a picture of what Jesus wants and what God honors among his people. What Jesus is teaching his disciples is he is not after the image of spirituality in his people. He is not after you and me putting our Jesus leaves on, coming to church on Sundays, you know, reading our Bible for five minutes or three minutes or 30 seconds every morning, opening up our Bible app because it sent us a notification and doing whatever just so we can feel good about ourselves. He wants us to become the kind of people through whom the beauty of heaven on earth can be shined in darkness. He wants us to actually bear the fruit of heaven on earth. Not to have the image of heaven on earth. God will judge fruitless faith. That's the lesson of the fig tree. If we're content with the image of Jesus, if we're content with the name of Christian, and then living however we want to live, we can't expect anything except for God to expose our lack of integrity. This is what the commandment is for in the Ten Commandments. I actually forget which commandment it is, so forgive me. I think it's commandment number three. You will not bear the name of the Lord your God in vain. If you grew up in the church or around the church or in like pop culture, it's just like don't use God's name as a curse word. But that's not what it means. What it actually means is, what is vain or vanity? 
It's to have the image of something without the substance of the thing. God was telling his people from the very beginning, don't you bear my name. Israel, or for us, Christian, disciple, follower of Jesus, in name only. So, what the fig tree warns us of is identifying or associating with Jesus and his people on Sunday and then living however we want on Monday. Real faith does not mean intellectual assent. It doesn't just mean like, yeah, I believe Jesus is alive with no ramifications for my life. Real faith is allegiance to the real king. And so, it means we hear his words and we want to do them. Like his apostles, like his disciples. Jesus, you're the one who has the words of life. Where else are we going to go? And so when Jesus goes on to say these astounding things about prayer, if you believe with no doubting, you could say to this mountain, be uprooted and thrown into the sea, and it will happen. These things tie together in that Jesus is saying, if you are really banking your life on me, if you are following me, if you are yearning and striving to bear the fruit of the kingdom in a hostile, dark, broken, evil, sinful world, with all the internal strife and difficulty that you have, if you draw near to God with prayer in integrity, your prayer will have power. God loves to answer the prayers of His people who are conforming their hearts to His heart. That's what James says when he says, the reason that you're not getting what you're asking for is because you're asking it wrongly. You're asking it for yourself, for your own passions, for your own lusts, for your own gluttony, whatever it might be, right? And so, I, listen, what I long for myself and for all of us to have is a heart of surrender to Jesus. That we wouldn't come to Jesus. Because this is how I think that it happens most of the time. None of us, I don't think, if you're in this room on a Sunday morning, you woke up early-ish to come to a gathering of the church, you're not here because you just want to say like, yeah, being a Christian has all this cultural capital that it yields me. Like, it's not popular to gather right now with Jesus' people. But here's what we do. And this is where I think we can compromise our faith. We can say, Jesus, you can have all of me except my future earning potential. Jesus, you can have all of me except the career path that I've been on since I was eight years old and knew I wanted to do X and Y and Z. Jesus, you can have all of me except don't tell me to forgive this person. And that is where Jesus pivots to. Following Jesus, we've got to have integrity and in verse 25, Jesus seems to just throw this add-on verse. He seems to pivot in a way that's kind of like, what are you talking about? Like, is this just like miscellaneous teachings of Jesus time? Have faith, your, your prayers will have power, and then if whenever you stand praying, forgive anyone against whom you have anything, 
so that your Father in heaven may also forgive you. No, he's talking about something that is so integral to integrity that without it, we can't have integrity. He's saying, all of my people, all of my people who have received the forgiveness of all of their darkness, all of them must freely pass on that same forgiveness to others. Power in prayer also flows from costly forgiveness. The most hypocritical act in the life of a forgiven child of God is to withhold forgiveness from others, especially the people of God. I never noticed this until this week, but this verse, Mark eleven twenty five, 25, is in the plural. Whenever you all stand praying, You all must forgive anyone against whom you all have anything, so that your Father in heaven may also forgive you all. As a church, we're not just kind of a, a nonprofit for Christian education. The church is supposed to be an outpost of the kingdom of God's glorious light in the midst of a really dark world. Now, you don't need me to tell you, forgiveness freely extended in our world is not normal. You need look no further than the latest Twitter outrage than to see that forgiveness is not normal. Because the kingdom of darkness, the way of the world, the way of, of Satan, is to dominate others. It's to take them and pin them down and to force your will upon them. Unforgiveness flows from pain and wrongdoing. Right? When you are sinned against, when I'm sinned against, that kind of anger that we feel boiling up within us that wants to lash back out and pay them back tries to tell us that justice won't be had that the wrong won't be righted unless we take our stand and pay back what was done against us. Now, forgiveness, according to Scripture, in the kingdom of God, is freely to be given. There are a lot of things that you know, we need to really wrestle through. What does the Scripture mean here? Like, loving our neighbors. Well, a lot of us don't even know our neighbors in L.A. Like, the people living around me in our apartment, we have neighbors that just moved in. I'm like, oh, man, I have to, like, go and meet these people and, like, get to know them and make sure that they know that we want to be friends with them and, like, be a blessing to them and help them. Like, it's not like we actually just know, oh, yeah, like, neighbors, easy. Other teachings, though, are crystal clear. And in the kindness of Jesus, this is crystal clear. There's no wrestling. Anyone, anyone, especially within the household of Jesus, the people of God, we must extend forgiveness freely and fully. Now, I do not say that with an ounce of ease or glibness. 
we're left then with wrestling through the consequences that we bear. Because the pain, the anger, the suffering, the wake of the effect that someone who has wronged us can have in our life, it does not go away the moment that we say, Jesus, I'm so angry, I'm so hurt, but I forgive them. Because what forgiveness is, is saying, I relinquish my right to vengeance. I entrust judgment to you. So what forgiveness is not, forgiveness is not reconciliation. Doesn't mean that everything goes back to normal. Forgiveness is not not being angry. But we do need to be angry at the right thing, right? Oftentimes, we're really angry at the person. When Scripture would call us to be angry at the darkness beyond just the person, like Paul says, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against all the powers and principalities of the enemy. There's a kind of animating darkness that we ought to be very angry with, and we need to check our anger that it's not burning uncontrollably against another person. So, let me tell you what unforgiveness looks like. Uh, mo the most common way that I feel it and see it. Um, we don't know how to do conflict anymore for the most part. And so unforgiveness, most of the time, sort of looks like just drifting, overlooking, ignoring, eventually just ghosting. And then you look, look around and the person's like, oh, where's, where's Steve? <laughs> I don't know, where'd Steve go? My kids are in the back making a Minecraft joke, guarantee you. The main character in Minecraft. Um, as the people of Jesus, we need to be able to do a couple things simultaneously. We need to be able to be looking clear-eyed the pain that sin causes in real relationships, seeing it, naming it, identifying it, knowing it, and yet forgiving it. Not allowing the energy of pain, the dark energy of pain, to fill us and cause us to return sin for sin, pain for pain. And so, Jesus says, if your brother or sister sins against you, go to him. Matthew 18. And so we go to someone who's sinned against us. That does force us to rectify whether or not we just feel like our feelings are hurt or if they actually sinned against us. But when they have actually sinned against us, we've got to talk about it. We've got to actually be able to say, hey, can I talk to you for a second? Last week in this interaction, I felt pretty hurt when you did or said X and Y and Z. And I just wanted to talk to you about it, so I didn't just like kind of sweep it under the rug or away. A, just so I could understand maybe what you were going through or experiencing or what you were thinking there. And if, if you need to, being able to say, I think you actually sinned against me. And it also means if we're the one who's hurt or wronged someone else or sinned against someone else, that priority in our spiritual life is seeking relational reconciliation and forgiveness.
from our brothers and sisters. And so if someone approaches you like that, and you start feeling the like, how could they? I didn't mean that. No, they're like reading into my motives. All the stuff that starts to kick up in us. Being able to then say, okay, tell me more. Help me understand. And from that place of walking in the light together with Jesus, integrity is formed. Because we're able to actually be in the presence of Jesus together and the sin that would have divided us from one another and in so doing divided us from Jesus in a way is gone. It's dealt with. Forgiveness means bearing pain and anger in such a way that it dies with us. But here's what Jesus promises us. When we open our hearts and our lives to be hurt, we actually are swept up into a nearer, more powerful communion with the Jesus who is hurt on our behalf and in a way by us in bearing our sin on the cross. Someone, as we were praying um, in Sunday prayer before the gathering, um, got a picture as we were saying, Holy Spirit, if you have anything for us, would you please just show us, lead us, speak to us, give us a passage of scripture, whatever it might be. And they said they saw a crown that was really like lavish and gold and had jewels in it. They saw it break and it was replaced by a crown of thorns that was like musty and unattractive. And when the person was sharing that, I was like, oh my goodness, I think there's something there for us. That we subtly start to believe in our culture, especially in a city like L.A., with so much glamour and wealth and luxury around us, that following Jesus brings the kind of blessing in our life that is just onward and upward forever. When actually, the way of Jesus leads us downward into the place of margins and pain and sorrow and difficulty. But here's the thing. Down there where Jesus is, is where the real glory that we're longing for is. The world tells us Luxury, wealth, comfort, control, power is where your life is found. And if you follow Jesus, blessing upon blessing will be yours. Now, if you follow Jesus, blessing upon blessing will be yours. But not in the gold and glamour. It will be yours as you follow Jesus into the hard place. And forgiveness is one of the hard places. And so, what I'm inviting us to is to search our hearts and ask the question, who do I need to forgive? Whether it's for the first time, or it's for the 10,000th time. Because sometimes it can feel just like an onion that's being unwrapped. And we discover a new context where the pain rises again, and we want to hold something in bitterness against someone, and we need to relinquish even there. And conversely, is there someone that we got to go ask forgiveness from? And I would invite us to do that because we want to be followers of Jesus with integrity that take him seriously because we know that when we do, we discover his power and grace and mercy and help. And then he fills us with joy and peace that he promises us.
But we got to go through the awkward, the pain, the conflict, the difficulty to get there. Amen?